ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. When you're commuting, tune out all the noise and tune into the news you need to know. WSJ Podcasts. Listen where you want, when you want. Coming up, Classics Professor Mary Beard has a new book about the ancient Roman Empire. She'll talk about how Roman times speak to today. Updates on arts and entertainment. Interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. Hi, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking today to Mary Beard. She's a professor of classics at Cambridge University. She's also the author of the new book, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. Professor Beard, thanks for joining us at the Wall Street Journal. Great to be with you. The title of your book, SPQR, is an acronym for the Senate and People of Rome. What are the main ways that the relationship between citizens and government back during ancient Roman times speaks to the same relationship today? <laughs> well, that's a very big question. Uh, we're starting I, big I here. I the title because I wanted to make sure that I put the Roman people back into the political picture of Rome, that it's very easy to tell a story of Rome, which is all about the elite, um, senators, emperors, and not to think about the people. But in fact, what you see throughout Roman history is the way that the people of Rome remain important, even if in different ways, and ways that, I think, speak to to us. And it's very easy to say, look, um, the Roman Empire you know, just bribed the people with you know, bread and circuses and that famous phrase. Actually, you can put it another way around, and you can say, look, there is a trade-off here between the Roman people and the Roman elite, and one of the things that Roman people gain from that is a right to be fed. There is a kind of sense that Rome is the first culture in the Western world which recognizes that it has a, a need, a necessity, and a moral right to feed its people. And a lot follows from that. Do you feel that, in a certain way, the Roman Empire helped create the modern-day welfare state? Did their influence really help push that idea in today's time? Well, I think it would be nice to think that. Um, and I think in some ways you can, you can trace that obligation, the, the sense that there is an obligation on the part of the state to, to make sure that its citizens, and I'm afraid in Rome, when I say its citizens, we're not talking about slaves and non-citizens, but the idea that its citizens should be fed is something that in some way we have inherited. Now, I think that's, it, in Rome, it's still a very long way from the modern welfare state. But I think there's still a kind of basic principle at stake there, which is important for us, and which no one had before Rome. It's also interesting to me to see that whole concept of bread and circuses, how it still echoes not only in political culture, but in pop culture as well. I mean, that word panem in the Latin rendering of that phrase. That's the name of the, the nation in the Hunger Games yeah, series. Yeah. 
And and so obviously that idea of bread and circuses still echoes in literature and in what people see in the movies. Yeah, and I, I and I think that um, particularly circuses, not bread. Um, I think has been a very, very powerful image in the last 100, 200 years of popular culture. And I think one of the things that, that my book tries to do is not to take away that very important image about Roman excess, Roman cruelty, Roman brutality. No, because you know, actually gladiators are really more, um, more popular now than they were 2,000 years ago. But to kind of keep that in place, but to say, look, it's actually part of a rather more complicated set of structures, which are important political uh, and debated structures in the Roman Empire. So, you know, I, you know, I look at the movie Gladiator with the best. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and I think all we have to do is stop a little, a little bit and to say, that's our image. Uh, in some ways, that's kind of true, but now let's, you know, let's dig a bit beneath the surface and think about what was really going on in uh, ancient Rome. Yeah, and in your book, you also write about this weird sub-theme about how rape is a key subject in the Roman cultural imagination. Tell me a bit about that. I mean, one thing I think which is very startling to us is the, the upfrontness of sexual violence in Roman stories about themselves. And one of the most powerful ones of that is um, goes back to the myths, and it is myth, not history, of earliest Rome, when Romulus, the founder of Rome, uh, wants to um, ensure that his, his city has a future. And he has a load of blokes there, but he has no women. And he wants to get some women, because without women, you won't have a, a next generation. What he does, after he's been rudely rejected by the people living round about, when he says, can I have your daughters to be our wives? What he does is he invites his neighbors to a festival, and at a signal, when they've all come, they've had a good time, at a given signal, his first citizens of Rome just carry off the neighboring women. And it's, it's a, an incident that went down in history as the rape of the Sabines, the Sabines being one of these neighboring communities. And it's, it is both a kind of extraordinary example of you know, absolutely clear male sexual violence and the Romans saw this as the first Roman marriage, and they debated in ways that are very familiar to me from you know, debates in the 1960s and 70s about whether marriage was rape, and they would say, look, all marriage is rape. It goes back to the rape of the Sabines. But they were deeply worried about this, and deeply they problematized that whole idea about marriage and rape ever after. Now, it was a complete myth, but... It was a myth that stuck in the Roman psyche. And the Romans, very interestingly, saw almost every political revolution in their history as in some ways accompanied by 
transgressive violence against women. So the early kingship in Rome, uh, which became a very brutal form of kingship, was turned into a form of democracy. But the catalyst for that was the rape of the virtuous woman Lucretia by one of the king's relatives. And it is a, it's a, for us, I think, quite startling but puzzling uh, juncture that the Romans worry about sexual violence, they talk about it, they problematize it, but they see it at almost every stage of their political development, that violence against women prompts the next stage of Roman politics. With that, we're going to pause for a second and be right back with a conversation with Mary Beard. Coffee? Check. Earbuds? Check. Make us part of your morning routine. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, updates on arts and entertainment, interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. This is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. I'm talking to Mary Beard. She's the author of an acclaimed new book, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. Okay, In this book, you write about the fact that Roman politics was dominated by a wealthy majority. But there's also a period that you write about where the plebeians sort of fought and secured more rights by a series of strikes and social action. Does anything about the relationship between the wealthy and the not wealthy in ancient Roman times really speak to inequality in wealth today? Well, I think it speaks to inequality in wealth today, but it certainly spoke to inequality in wealth in the early 20th century. Because one of the images that the founders of the trade union movement in in both Britain and the US had in mind was the idea of class conflict in early Rome. So uh, early early democratic, quasi-democratic Rome had uh, it was effectively dominated in its in its first centuries by the rich elite, and what the the story is told, it's very uncertain quite how true this is, but it's but it's symbolically true that the uh, the, the poorer citizens, the disadvantaged citizens, actually uh, challenged the rich elite for political rights, for economic rights, and they did that through what was the ancient equivalent of a strike. You know, they said, we're not fighting in the army, we're going to have a sit-down strike on that hill over there. And in the end, the plebeian cause won. And they did it by basically withdrawing their labour. And so you get wonderful um, retellings of that story in early 20th century magazines where uh, the idea of how you imagine the rights of the people can be really asserted uh, uh, is somehow framed in terms of ancient Rome. I think it's not, you know, it's not entirely um, gone even now, you know, that there is a the standoff between the haves and the have-nots still in some ways looks back to ancient Rome. And, you know, in this country a few years ago, um, uh, a, a prominent British politician actually lost his job because he called um, a policeman 
a plebeian. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and it still has that resonance that uh, the patrician elite versus the plebeian non-elite you know, is, still, is still a word that, that signals things. And you know, poor old Andrew Mitchell, who probably didn't call the policeman a plebeian ever, uh, uh, ended sacked from the government for apparently, allegedly using that word. Now, another key theme in your book is immigration. Uh, people don't often think about immigration when it comes to ancient Romans, but in a way, immigration policy, which sort of ends your book as well, is something that helped make the Roman Empire strong and maybe help spread its power. Could you explain that a bit? Yeah. I think one of the questions about Rome is you know, why it got an empire. And it didn't get an empire because it was more militaristic than anybody else. Um, you know, every culture, uh, you know, in the 5th, 4th, 3rd centuries BC, when Rome was becoming powerful, they were all militaristic and they all put enormous store uh, behind military valor, virtue or cruelty, however you choose to see it. I think what marks Rome out is that what it did, and we don't know whether it did this because it, you know, because from any grand plan at all, and probably not, but it incorporated the people that it conquered. So uh, in, instead of just going and bashing up its neighbours and then going away again, it formed permanent relationships with its neighbours, which were often those of citizenship which brought more and more people into the Roman polity. So that by the time you get to the 3rd century BC, very early in the, in the growth of the Roman Empire, Rome can actually call on 700,000 troops, which is dramatic uh, and unbelievable in ancient terms. And it's done that because instead of keeping a big wall between itself and those it conquers, it said, okay, you can be part of that system. You can be part of our system. All you need to do is you need to provide troops for our army, but we can be a joint polity in some way. You know, and Rome was really the first state in the, in the Western world who said, look, you can be a citizen of two places. You know, you can be a citizen of where you grew up, wherever that is, but you can also be a citizen of Rome. And that gave it a huge military advantage. Um, and I don't think they, I, I don't think it was a very liberal position that they were consciously holding, but they changed the nature of what it was to belong. Extremely important. I also want to move into sort of our lightning round, our pop culture lightning round, where um, I want to read a, a name, names of a few of my favorite TV and movies that deal. Uh, 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 I want to read a few of my favorite TV shows and movies that dealt with life in the ancient Roman world. <laughs> and I want you to sort of comment very quickly about whether you enjoyed them yeah. uh, or whether you think they're realistic or not. Yeah. So, different. <laughs> of course, of course, Spartacus, 1960. What are you? What, what are some of your impressions of that movie? Uh, look, you know, I don't think that anybody, you know, who watched the, the Spartacus movie, um, could, you know, you know, could ever.
never come away without, you know, remembering the I am Spartacus moment, the idea of slave solidarity. You know, it's brilliant. Now, I, mean, I think the problem about it was, you know, and uh, you have to separate one's in, your enjoyment from the reality. I think the problem about it was, uh, is that there was, in the ancient world, absolutely no sense of an anti-slavery ideology. And what you get in the Kubrick movement, in the, in the Kubrick movie, is, is a, a hint that these guys have got a, an ideological agenda which was more than just getting away. You know, they're, they're driven by something. And, of course, that's uh, an ideology that, that is very easy for us to share, but it is a modern ideology. And if you look back to what we know about Spartacus, um, you know, the truth is that we don't know why those gladiators broke out of that little uh, gladiatorial school in Capua, but 99.9% .9 certain they didn't have much idea either, and all they wanted to do was get home. Well, what, what, what did you think of the TV show Spartacus that ran from 2010 well, to 2013? You know, I, you know, I, you know I, I'm a Kubrick girl. You know, look, I'm 60. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, wasn't, I didn't quite see the Kubrick movie, movie when it came out. Um, but uh, it was a cut above all this kind of blood and gut stuff on the Spartacus TV program, which I thought was nugatory. Kubrick was trying to say something about slavery. And I think he was wrong in what he was trying to say about slavery in the ancient world. But it was moving, it was to the point, and it was brilliantly done. And uh, the Spartacus TV series is just you know, schlick. So not your cup of tea. Now what about Ben-Hur from 1959? And there's a remake coming of that that's going to come out next year. Oh, is there? Well, you know, also I think that, you know, again, one of the things that, that entices us to Rome is the idea of excess. And, you know, and that is not just a modern idea. You know, the Romans themselves were, were built into a version of, you know, of the idea that they were larger than life. Uh, and the, the, the chariot race in Ben-Hur, uh, you know, including its you know, appalling, awful uh, um, human cost, because I think that people didn't come out unscathed from doing that movie, uh, it, that is, you know, if a Roman watched Ben-Hur, they would, they would recognize themselves, hmm. I think, in the idea that this is entertainment which is larger than life. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff is, is very helpful for us getting a, getting a, a take on Rome that, that sometimes, not always, but sometimes the Romans themselves would have seen and understood. Now, I've heard that you enjoyed the I, Claudius TV series from the 70s. Mm. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and it was uh, 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 it was shown on both sides of the Atlantic, and it was uh, very uh, it was brilliant for all kinds of ways. Partly because it was so low budget that that you that you really concentrated because they didn't have any money to do anything else. You know, happily they couldn't go and have you know, fight wars on the frontiers because they didn't have enough money for extras. So everything was concentrated on power politics. 
and on what happened in the palace and on how people related to one another. And it's a very, it's a very Roman version, a very elite Roman version of how uh, power politics in Rome worked. Uh, it disregards the rest of the empire. It disregards the poor. It just concentrates on the imperial family. Uh, and there will be all kinds of ways in which you'd say it can't have been quite like that. But it just took you very adeptly to what the center of Roman power or any kind of court power might look like. Now, of course, you're a professor of classics at Cambridge University. You're a respected and serious scholar. What then explains the fact that I hear you love the movie Life of Brian from 1979? Because I think that the moment, you know, the, the famous moment of, you know, what, so what do the Romans do for us then? You know, well, well it was the roads and the drains. And, and I think, look, actually, that isn't so stupid. There's a, there's a sense in which uh, it's very easy to, to admire ancient Athens and to admire democracy and philosophy, and the Romans have plenty of that too. But, but there is something quite important that when you come down to it, um, well, you, know, you know, I live in the UK, and I say, well, the roads... The Roman roads are still my roads. The Roman cities are still my cities. And the infrastructure that the Romans built in Europe is still the European infrastructure. And if you turn away from that, you might hate the Romans, you might, I think it's a bit hard to love them, but you could admire them in some ways. But they formed the European world that we now know. Why is London the capital of the UK? Because the Romans made it the capital. It's a damn stupid place to have a capital, but that's where it is. And what did you think of the TV series Rome that ran from 2005 to 2007? I thought it was wonderful in its recreation of what the Roman world was like. You know, I thought it was that its detail about... um, where the slaves were, uh, what house looked like. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, in the end, uh, I got, I have to say, uh, and I hope it's all right to confess this, I got a bit lost in who everybody was. You know, and when some Metellus came on the screen, I thought, now, which Metellus is this? And I, I kind of, I, I became a little bit frustrated because I couldn't follow who all the, the, the sort of bit part actors were. But, as a in, imaginary version of ancient Rome, I thought it was damn good. Of course, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask the author of SPQR, History of Ancient Rome, what she thought of perhaps one of the most popular uh, portrayals of ancient Roman life, the movie Gladiator from 2000 with Russell Crowe. What are your thoughts about that? I, I, I'm a complete sucker for Gladiator. Um, uh, I thought it was one of the best i.e. the most violent and horrible reconstructions of ancient battles that you've ever had. But uh, happily, the gladiatorial spectacle was advised by a very smart woman at Harvard uh, 
who in the end, I think, fell out with the gladiator team, but had clearly got them to read ancient accounts about, of, from the Romans themselves about gladiatorial spectacle. And they did recreate it in a way that was you know, not true. You could never recreate the Roman world. It's, it's always partly a fantasy. But it's still... Uh, gladiator got something about the, both the violence but also the exoticism of ancient Roman gladiatorial shows. Well, um, uh, Mary Beard, thanks a lot for talking with us about your book. The book is SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. It's available now, and we've been talking to Mary Beard, who wrote the book. She's a professor of classics at Cambridge University. Thanks again, Professor Beard. Thank you very much. Nice to talk. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.